Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and sometime researcher. Santosh. Yeah. It's the holiday season. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Yes, we've got... uh... We've got the nog flowing. We're going to flow with the nog. And then uh, we've got just a couple of weeks until every single radio station is just looping Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. (laughs) One holiday at a time. (laughs) Wait your turn, fat boy. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So we, we just finished... Your very, very favorite holiday. Well, maybe not your very favorite holiday, but it's definitely up there in your top three. We all we all know my favorite holiday is Comic Con, but my second, <laughs> yeah, is, yeah. Is all- but no, now it's the food holiday, the one oh, where yes, we stuff yeah. ourselves, where okay. that's dedicated to eating. And okay. as such, as yes. I'm always thinking with my stomach, <laughs> okay. usually we associate eating eating more in the winter rather than the summer. Yeah, yeah. We kind of, there are ancient, you know, when you, when you go back to Neanderthal days and those kind of things, is you kind of hunker down and you save up calories for the winter. Uh, if we go even back further back in our evolutionary tree, we have hibernation where we tuck in and then the winter sets in and then you just hibernate. But I found one article and then, and then we'll, come up with a terrible segue and introduce the rest of the show. Yeah. What well, just, by the way, the first time, cause I had heard the word, but I hadn't read the word and it wasn't that long ago in my life, but I genuinely thought that that word was Suguya. Oh, <laughs> yeah. you know what? I'm still mispronouncing articles like bio RXIV. So <laughs> don't worry about it. Um, We're not doing this right now. What do you, okay. G- give us your Seguya. So this, this is going to be dedicated to food. And before I give everybody's favorite intro, there is legit science going on that shows men, specifically men mm. may eat more in summer because sunlight makes them hungrier (laughs) i wouldn't be terribly surprised yeah you're more active all your metabolic processes are kind of going going so you know you need to feed the engine sure and that's because i'm just going to give you the real quick rundown 
Yeah, yeah, go. We're not going to get into the heavy science of this because, frankly, there isn't any. But uh, in Tel Aviv University in Israel, they they have been studying whether or not sunlight makes the skin release an appetite-stimulating hormone called ghrelin. Yes, yes. It's one of, our, it's one of my favorite names. Uh, as you know, scientists are pretty bad at naming stuff. Don't even get me started. <laughs> but yeah, just, okay, that makes you hungry. What does it do? It makes your stomach growl. Oh, yeah. Call it growling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so Israel does the uh, National Health and Nutrition Survey, mm-hmm. and they looked at existing data on about 3,000 people and found that between March and September, men consumed about 17% more calories per day than they did during the rest of the year, while women's food intake stayed about the same. Now, of course, Israel presumably doesn't celebrate Christmas. Sure. <laughs> well, there there are, you know, a, a pretty sizable population of, you know, Israeli Christians, Palestinian Christians. And so, you know, I'm sure they are there, but there are the holidays, including Passover, you know, around the same. Yeah, but period. a Jewish holiday comes up and you celebrate by not eating. Well, so. <laughs> fasting. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Okay. Yeah, like that's, that's what you do in Judaism. Oh, look, a holiday. Let's not eat. The short, the short version of this, the researchers looked through all of these and they're still not entirely clear why it happens more in men and not in women, but the idea is that P53, which is okay. our tumor protecting gene, yeah, the gets, great gatekeeper, yes, gets turned on when you're out in sunlight with exposing exposing yourself, not exposing yourself, exposing <laughs> male mice to to UVB radiation present in sunlight, also raised levels of ghrelin secretion by fat cells in their skin. Uh, cool. But this, but this ghrelin secretion was actually blocked by the sex hormone estrogen, which may explain oh. why it's not seen in female, white, female mice or women. Uh, boosted ghrelin secretion was also seen in skin samples taken from men and exposed to UV light. And this may indicate that the sun might play a role in appetite, which has nothing to do as we go into Mariah Carey season. But as we, a large portion of the country, just moved into daylight savings and might be losing our appetite. Out of of daylight savings. Long story short, less sunlight means maybe guys aren't eating as much. I don't know. (laughs) But I wanted to do an entire episode just dedicated to food not like food we eat but how how foods are being used in medicine and not in the ways you think this isn't like some hippy dippy you know (laughs) i am vitamins and yeah like vitamins and whatever no folks it's time for everybody's favorite bi-monthly segment which i'm pretty sure i missed at least a week Bi-weekly, bi-monthly, <laughs> one day I'm going to learn. But you all know what's coming next. Get those Kermit no. arms up in the air because what it's time for Journal Club. Yay! Yay! I, there's like 30% of you that I didn't see you doing your Kermit arms. And don't ask me how I know, but I know. Oh, we know. So the <laughs> theme of this Journal Club is you are what you treat. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Very nice. So that could be treat like treating an ailment or it could be like getting a treat. Yeah. Uh, So we're going to start off with some, we're going to build from mini science to major science to something that I'm going to throw at you as a surprise, Santosh, and you're going to be amused, horrified, and confused all in the same (laughs) moment. Yeah. uh, We'll go from there. Pretty Pretty much like every other episode, yeah. <laughs> All right, fair. A little hurtful, yeah, yeah. but fair. <laughs> no, it's not hurtful at all. The, the, <laughs> the roller coaster of emotions is why I love co-hosting this podcast with you. At least Journal Club only has Kermit arms and not a theme music segment like some of our others. So uh... <laughs> that's, that's true. So my hearing stays intact. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so let's start off with using food to treat hemorrhaging, uh, specifically 
okra. What? No. Okra. No. Shut yeah. Up. Well, okay, okay. Okay. Okra okay. gel. Okra oh, gel. Okay. Okra gel all day. I'll, I'll take that. Okay. Hit me up yeah. with some okra gel. So bleeding from punctured organs usually is stopped with sutures. But yeah. this can cause inflammation and infection. And on occasion, not being a surgeon myself, but I've heard, uh, people can bleed out and die before sutures can be sewn. Yes. As yeah. a so result. You, you, this is, you're talking about field medicine versus in the hospital type medicine. Well, both. As such, usually gels made from a protein called fibrin are used to rapidly halt bleeding in surgery. But they're expensive and derived from animals. You know, gelatin, yep. which is horse hooves, pig lips, hot dog parts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not not very nice to grind them up in order to... It's, it's for a good cause, but still, you know, if we can avoid that, yeah. So what if we could make a vegetarian gel to stop bleeding? <laughs> You'd be excited about that, right? Me personally and the entire corn brigade, absolutely. I mean, That's corn to... spelled Q-U-O-R-N. I know, I know you're not a vegetarian because you love animals, but instead because you hate plants. So <laughs> Deeply. <laughs> Malcolm Shing at the University of Manitoba in Canada Mm-hmm. and his colleagues at Al oh, have created okay. a freeze-dried powder from okra juice that forms a gel after contact with blood and rapidly seals injury sites. Awesome. Now, in what's just absolutely charming and, and brings us around to that theme of food and holidays and family, mm-hmm. researcher Shing said, Oh, I I saw my mom cooking okra dishes, and that gave me the idea that the sticky juice from vegetables that always got on our hands could be applied to make a bioadhesive. This man watched his mom cooking (laughs) and thought, I bet I can save lives with that. (laughs) This is what I absolutely love about scientific discovery, and I think that everyone should have the chance to engage in this kind of creative thinking a lot. Uh, you know, it, it, everybody's, like, oh, penicillin. Anybody could have discovered penicillin. You know, there was a rotting plate and they would have seen the fungus. No, no, no. It takes a special kind of mind to actually observe a behavior or phenomenon or any of those things and say, hey, what what else can I do with that? Or what, what else is going on? So this... This study was in Advanced, the journal Advanced Healthcare Materials, and mm-hmm. we'll link to that in the show notes. But the instant version, <laughs> the powdered version <laughs> of the story. The distilled version, yes. There you go. When the team used this powder to seal roughly one centimeter wide circular wounds in the hearts and livers of dogs and rabbits. Yeah, okay. So that's our and- animal model. And one centimeter is is a pretty decent size wound. Think about, would you say your thumbnail, Santosh, is about a centimeter? One centimeter. So what we usually say is most people's hands, the the width across your index finger is about one centimeter. The width holding your finger like you're pointing? No, no. (laughs) The width. Across the nail. Yeah, so uh, yeah, about, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so your your index finger, if I guess, if you have delicate thumbs, sure, yes, um, yeah. <laughs> or or big honking thumbs, you know, and, oh, cartoon so, thumbs, yeah. Anyway, yeah. look at your look at your nail. The width of that is about a centimeter. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that bleeding out. Now apply some okra gel to it, and bleeding stopped within one minute. Um, Whereas in animals with identical wounds not treated with the gel, substantial bleeding continued to occur. And even though the team only monitored the wounds for about two minutes after applying the gel, so we can't realistically say whether or not this is a lasting effect. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, But it certainly is a rapid onset. And without the adhesive, it would typically take about 20 minutes 
for the clotting process to occur in wounds like the heart or the liver that are highly vascular organs. And by then, you know, after 20 minutes of bleeding out through a highly vascular organ, things aren't going well for you. Gotcha. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you're going to go start to go into shock pretty quickly. And, you know, even though the blood is sitting there next to the organ, the, the organ can't utilize it. You're going to start to have pressure effects from the bleeding itself. And the other important parts of your body that really need oxygen and blood, like your heart, your lungs, and your brain, once they start shutting down, bad things happen. So there's two components to this. The gel itself forms a physical barrier, but lots of things do that. Mm -hmm. um, somehow, some component that has still not yet been discovered initiates the blood clotting process. Yeah, the cascade, as we like to say. Further experiments also suggest that the gel dissolves harmlessly in the body after four to seven weeks without inducing harmful inflammation. Oh, and this is really important, right? So you want this to be inert enough that, you know, you, you know, you can use a lot of materials to actually initiate clotting. So for instance, Josh, silver will do this, but silver is also highly, highly irritating and it can cause a, a, a chemical reaction with your skin that essentially causes a burn. So you're doing more damage than just stopping the clotting when so you're it, using an agent like that. So you, you having a, the ability to use something inert is actually really important. So it's about three to six fold higher than commercial fibrin, which is what we use now on mm -hmm. pig skin and glass, um, which are of course the two closest analogs to human skin. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, glasses. Well, okay. Pigskin. Pigskin is because I remember, like, my very first day of ER uh, rotations in learning how to suture. Here's when I say my very first day. I mean, arrived to Cook County. Yeah. Did my orientation. They had us practice suturing on uh, samples of pigskin in the back, and not even two hours later, I was suturing people. And I bet yeah. those people did not know. Yeah. <laughs> See, this is the thing, right? Someone has to be your first suture. Like, it's just, <laughs> just that that's the only thing, is that, that there has to be someone who has to be your first one. They had so, a, they had enough scars that I don't think they would have noticed one more. Okay, gotcha. But that is neither here nor there. So this okra gel presents a high pressure resistance, good underwater adhesive strength, activates platelets, releases coagulation factors 11 and 12. Okay. Forms a fast gel layer that can start clotting within two minutes as opposed to 20. And as if all of that wasn't impressive enough, it's about a hundredth the price of similar fibrin-based adhesives currently used in clinics. This is so cool. So you might actually ask the question because there have been for a pretty long time stories of, especially, you know, in the field, in the military field and that kind of a thing, these kind of fast acting adhesives that you just, you inject it right into a bleed, um, you know, where someone's had a gunshot or something and it just expands almost like a foam and, uh, you know, clots off the area. Absolutely. These have been around, but just like you said, Josh, they were tough to get a hold of. They were expensive. And so they were really reserved for very extreme circumstances like the battlefield. So, you know, now we can potentially have this available to, you know, EMTs and it can be cheap and easy and available. We do have to get it you know, pass through FDA and everything like that, make sure it's safe. Um, and the final bit really is we have to make sure, Josh, that we can store it properly so that you can, you know, somehow deliver it and it's not exposed to air, oxygen, that kind of thing, kept sterile, all that fun stuff. I vaguely remember hearing one of my other Indian friends tell me a joke. Do you know why okra would be the best gymnast of all the vegetables? 
Well, Okra would be the best gymnast. Uh, no. Why would Okra be the best gymnast? Because it's bendy. Uh, <laughs> you go. I really like that. Yeah. So for <laughs> those non-Hindi speakers out there, yeah, uh, uh, bendy or bindi is the pronunciation as the uh, what we say is Hindi word for uh, for okra. Next mm-hmm. time you're bleeding out, help! I need something bendy. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess if you're making gumbo, but you know, don't pour hot soup onto a wound. That's just yes. not going to help anyone. Yes. So. Yes. There you go. That's that's our first story. Okra gel for bleeding. <laughs> I like it. That's that's a pretty good food story, food medicine story. Now that now we're going to move away from more traditional foods and you know, we're still talking salads. We also just recently aired our annual influenza special. <laughs> and Santosh, I've talked to you before about nanobots and ai in general (laughs) well these are two separate things right nanobots don't necessarily have any artificial intelligence they're not gonna rise up and that kind of a thing nanobots are just you know very small uh usually simple machines that can be manipulated And yes, if you give an artificial intelligence a ton of nanobots, especially if they're self-replicating, we might have a problem, but the two don't always go together. Regardless, (laughs) my general distrust of advanced mechanics, despite my fascination for them, (laughs) is well known. It's a weird relationship. Yeah, yeah. It is. It's (laughs) it's a love-hate relationship with technology that I have. So when I tell you in our next story that nano-engineers at UC San Diego are taking on pneumonia. Okay, (laughs) that's good. And their solution is a swarm of microscopic robots (laughs) to deliver medication through the lungs. Yes, yes. I'm almost certain that you might be, like, over-exaggerating this, but um, sure, okay. Would you not use a swarm? They're nano. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you don't you use a few like it doesn't have to be a swarm necessarily they self-replicate santosh i've seen the movies yeah. but <laughs> okay so okay. during during lab trials using mouse models the yes. microbots uh-huh. created by the engineers prove themselves very efficient at clearing pneumonia causing bacteria from the lungs resulting in a 100 survival rate of mice treated All animals in the control group, which were injected with the same bacterial strain, but did not receive treatment with the nanobots, died within three days of infection. Yeah, so that's your control. Before we get into some of the the more methodological details of the study, now's when I give the big twist. (laughs) All right, what, what is the big twist? Each robot is constructed from an algae cell with antibiotic-filled nanoparticles affixed to its surface. These aren't robots at all. They're plantobots. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they're they're engineered cells. So what makes them robotic is our ability to kind of program them, right? We can, in, in one way or the other, we can tell them where to go and what to do and then release them into the environment where they're going to, you know, where robots are going to robot. I, I like to think of it as like putting a little jet pack on a plant cell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. In this, maybe, or maybe a little flagella in this case, so it can move around. Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah. each robot's constructed from an algae cell with yeah. antibiotic-filled nanoparticles affixed to its surface. Right. So... The algae cell, which is living, provides motility with its flagella Mm -hmm. uh, to the microbot so that it can travel through the lung and come into direct contact with as many bacteria as possible in the grossest, most fun game of bumper cars that you can possibly imagine. (laughs) That's that's true. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So the, the cell carries this pegylated nhs ester it it has a little molecule that stands on it yep Uh uh-huh and then um each of these 
nanoparticles are basically spheres. So really Mario Kart would be the better analogy here. You're driving, you have your little algae cell with its, you know, antibiotic balloons, and you're Mm -hmm. trying to ram into bacterial cells so you can coat them with human neutrophils, which is an immune cell that will then absorb and neutralize the inflammatory compounds produced by the bacteria. So, yeah, you're, you're trying to provoke a response. Yeah. Um, and by doing this, you also reduce excess inflammation. So you improve the speed with which you can recover from pneumonia as well, because you don't have that lingering inflammation from your own body gearing up its defense systems to fight off an infection. Yeah. Okay. I really, really love this, by the way. Um, let me give a very, very special shout out. So the lead author in this paper is Fang Yu Zhang, um, who is down at UC San Diego, actually. And one of the folks on this paper is Dr. Victor Nizet, who is a pediatric infectious disease specialist. He recently came to speak to us um, on, you know, alternative ways of fighting uh, bacteria, because Josh, we're going to run out of antibiotics. Like it's this, this thing where we just bombard the body with antibiotics and there's no targeting or anything like that. And we're going to make them evolve. And eventually we're going to run out. So we need cooler and cooler different ways in order to attack bacteria and by the way, this is in cancer and rheumatology. They have biologics, they have antibodies, they have all these cool things. We're still stuck with the nuclear option. But in this case, Dr. Zhang, Department of Nanoengineering and Chemical Engineering at the University of California at San Diego, got to partner with, you know, the Department of Pediatrics and Dr. Nizet, and he's pursuing this big grand goal of finding different ways to attack infection. So I, I got to give the shout out. Another shout out, Josh, which is really, really cool, is in order to kind of activate this whole process, they use a really cool chemistry called click chemistry, <laughs> where, you know, you actually get, you know, uh, artificial molecules to kind of click together in order to do whatever it needs to do. So in this case, they attach an antibiotic loaded neutrophil membrane to natural microalgae. And where did our wonderful click chemistry come from? Well, one of the Nobel Prize winners this year, okay, uh, October 5th, 2022, was Kay Barry Sharpless at the Scripps Research in La Jolla, California. So it's all, you know, going down. So let's talk a little bit about how this actually worked. In order to study how effective these little plantabots, name mine. Uh, <laughs> all right. Are you listening? San Diego, you can't use the word plantabots or, you know, 10% to travel media. Yeah. Plantabots, TM. <laughs> in order to study how effective the plantabots were, the team infected lab mice with Pseudomonas aeruginosa, mm-hmm. one of yeah, our most so, common pneumonia-causing bacteria. In the ICU, right? So, mm-hmm. Josh, these are all of our ventilated patients. You know, they're on a on vent something. They're in the intensive care unit. They can get or, Pseudomonas. you know, unfiltered jacuzzis, water parks. Oh, that, that's true too. Yeah, that's true too. Although it, it, it's ubiquitous in water, essentially. Commonly in a hospital setting, it's seen in patients on mechanical ventilation in intensive care, and it's one of the more common nosocomial or healthcare acquired infections. The robots were administered to the mice using a tube inserted through their windpipe that reached the lungs. We intubated mice. Yep. <laughs> All of the mice treated with the plantabots had their infections completely cleared in one week's time and a survival rate over 30 days of 100%. That's great wow. for discharge. Yeah. 
from, you know, Mouse Hospital. Yeah, yeah. Imagine, Josh, when antibiotics were first discovered and used widely, we reduced mortality for for serious bacterial infections like pneumonia and sepsis, but somewhere like 30% immediately. And we were so overjoyed. Imagine if you could go to someone and say, okay, we're going to lower your risk of mortality by 99%. I mean, that's insane. Well, not only that, but here's another reason why it would be cheaper. Uh, the robots were actually more effective at clearing out the infection than a regular approach of antibiotics because injections would require an antibiotic dose about 3,000 times higher than that used by the robots dealing with the same infection. Uh, the wow. microbots provided around 500 nanograms of antibiotics per mouse while an injection would provide about 1.6 milligrams of antibiotics yeah. per mouse, uh, which is 1 million nanograms. So that's that's a couple orders of magnitude. Um, it's it's pretty huge. Super highly efficient rate. <laughs> and the main reason for this is what I alluded to earlier. Antibiotics are chemotherapy. You give it to the entire body and there's a spectrum of bacteria that are killed by an antibiotic, including, hopefully, if you get it right, the pathogen, the one that's actually causing the problem in your lungs. But at the same time, you know, the, the healthy ones in your gut and your mouth and on your skin and all of these get eradicated and the antibiotic has to circulate number one. And Josh, if you have any necrotic tissue, meaning that it's dead tissue and you don't have a blood supply going to it, now you have to get surgeons involved because the antibiotic cannot get there and you have to debride away that tissue. In this particular case, the microbots can swim wherever they need to. And, you know, especially or wherever like you program them, which is the bot Part of it. Which is the bot part of it. And so they're just going to go. And now that very small amount of antibiotic that you send in is very concentrated just in the area where you need to send it. I love it. And then it just, you know, runs around going, wee, amok, 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 <laughs> bouncing into bacterial <laughs> particles, releasing its little balloons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I love how this all comes together. You've got. Uh, you know, experts in nanochemistry, you've got a pediatric infectious disease doc, you have click chemistry, which is a Nobel Prize winning discovery that's also at Scripps, along with Copenhagen and Stanford University. But dude, so many discoveries all coming together. I genuinely hope this moves forward somehow into preclinical and clinical trials. It's It's a long way off. But oh my god, I'm I'm, I'm picturing a delivery system almost like an asthma inhaler. Uh, yes. Based on the the dosages, it looks like they're using. Of course, humans would require more than mouse dosages, but the the severe reduction in the amount needed to have the intended effect means you could have almost like a little banaca spray uh, <laughs> tailored yeah. to your specific infection. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And it, I don't know, the, the future possibilities are really cool. They're really I'm excited. And yeah, yeah. And we're going to probably see reduction in things like antibiotic resistance, right? Because you're, you're delivering your antibiotics in a very targeted way. And Josh, the, that fallout from systemic antibiotics where, you know, you kill the bacteria in your gut. And so you cause an imbalance over there and all these other things are avoided. There are so many problems that are being addressed with this type of 
system. So this may not be the type, this may not be the actual technology that ultimately comes to us, but I, I anticipate it'll be something like this. And the future is so cool. As we're moving on with the you are what you eat, you are what you treat. Santosh, what's the one organ that we still have yet to figure out how to replace, substitute, or ultimately cure when there are things wrong with it? Yeah, the the last great frontier is the brain. And this has to do, there's definitely some... No, 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 no. Lots of people are walking around without functional use of their brains. I'm talking about... (laughs) I'm talking okay. about the pancreas. We still have yet to oh. figure out. And I really, I went a food episode and you went to the brain. <laughs> well, it's true. Like that's, that's the big one right now is that like, how do we, if, if you have a problem with the brain, we can't fix it. You are a hundred percent correct about the pancreas though. You, we can even transplant, although it doesn't work great intestines and we can do liver and kidneys and, you know, you can actually live without a stomach. Lung, for heart transplants. Lung, heart, abs- most of that, the viscera, and then you can do prosthetics for your limbs. But you're right. If your pancreas goes out, it is so complex and multifunctional that we certainly can't replace all of it. But Josh, even if you talked about like one one aspect of it, like just the exocrine or sorry, the endocrine part, the, the part that regulates our sugar, like we can't even do one function of it. Yeah, it's still, you know, the last great frontier. Forget you with your yeah. brain business. <laughs> Well, I, I will say that pancreas and brain evidently is very much alike when you cook it. And no, no, pancreas is is sweet meats. Sweet meat. That's what it is. All right. So we've mentioned on several journal clubs, yay, in the past <laughs> about the attempt to create a bionic pancreas, and that's not the same as some of the insulin pumps currently existing because Mm -hmm. those still aren't quite as exact and you know all have to be worn on the outside all the time right um the artificial pancreas researchers at harvard medical school just announced some pretty exciting results for a clinical trial of a bionic pancreas for people with type 1 diabetes that requires nothing, no interaction from the patient, no involvement, no checking a battery, no refilling these. Uh, The artificial pancreas automatically delivers custom-made doses of insulin based on the patient's medical history and diet. So there's already, you have to really be honest when you're filling that out. (laughs) The the survey, the survey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I also like how this article is very tactful. This system solves one of the biggest challenges faced by individuals with diabetes who often do not comply to the letter with their insulin delivery schedules (laughs) and regimens. (laughs) And, you know, I, I, I hate to say this, but when you're dealing with my teenage population, that is where it gets really rough really quick, actually. <laughs> As opposed to my every other age population who's <laughs> always very compliant. Yeah, I, I, doctor's orders to the letter yeah, as long I, as they're in my sight line. Yeah, I am envious of your ability to get your uh, patients, your, your older patients, to comply as opposed to my teenagers is what I'm saying. I'm an inpatient doctor. They don't get released unless they are complying. (laughs) So it's a trick up your sleeve. Yeah. So a quick primer for those of you who may not be familiar with what diabetes is. Insulin is released by your pancreas to lower your blood sugar and keep it in the normal range. And in people with insulin resistance, glucose can't be removed from the blood because the liver or the fat and the muscles just don't respond well to signaling. In type 1 diabetes, the pancreas will progressively reduce the amount of insulin it produces until it stops producing any at all. 
in type 2 diabetes, you acquire resistance, meaning your pancreas will keep producing insulin, but your body just ignores the signals it's saying. It's selective deafness from your viscera. Yeah, and we used to think of these as two completely separate entities. Type 1, often called juvenile onset diabetes, autoimmune, you have antibodies that attack the beta cells in your pancreas. Those are the the little signals that they they actually receive sugar signals and they release insulin in response to it. And we used to think that, okay, type one strictly autoimmune and you, you know, they attack the, the beta cells, you lose your beta cells, you no longer have them, you can't make insulin. Type two later onset. But it turns out, Josh, there is quite a bit of overlap in between the two. But in both of them, there is this universal problem of signaling. How much insulin do you need to make in order to get the sugar, okay, which is insulin acts like a lock in a key. It opens up the fat cells and muscle cells to allow insulin to go, or sorry, to allow glucose to get out of your blood and then into your cells so that they can be stored properly. So how do we replicate that really cool ability of I sense there's this much concentration of sugar in the blood. So I need to release this much insulin in order to lower it back down to normal. And then really importantly, Josh, I need to be able to shut off that insulin when the sugar gets to the right level or too low, because of course, hypoglycemia is just as dangerous. So traditionally, the way that we've achieved tight regulation is through injections. You check your blood, which gets a measure of how much glucose is floating around in the bloodstream. And diabetics will then use that number, which your doctor will give you a target range. You will then inject a certain amount of insulin in order to open up enough doors for glucose to get out of the bloodstream and into where it needs to be. Now, not every diabetic requires insulin, but many of them ultimately will. And a lot of people, shockingly, don't like needles. <laughs> and we've done everything that we possibly can, right? We have... You we've know, offered lollipops, but yeah. still... <laughs> So according to one study, only about 61% of diabetic patients regularly adhere to their insulin treatments. Right. And we're coming into an age where it really sucks here in the United States right now because it's not always the patient's fault. Sometimes it's an affordability problem too, which is absolutely awful that, you know, we really need stricter laws to make sure that you know, folks can't charge a million dollars for a shot of insulin. So a lot so of factors. So let's get into some of the details here and, and the marketing. You know what? You always know when it's a marketing person rather than a scientist who's involved sure. with these things. So <laughs> okay. this new device, which again, when we say artificial pancreas, you're probably thinking of like a robotic organ that goes inside you and it's not. This is <laughs> the same as so many of the ones that came before, which is a credit card sized device that Ooh, okay. has to be worn pretty much all day or day. And <laughs> it has to be worn at all times. It's usually placed on the abdomen. It's made by Beta Bionics and it is named, are you ready? The eyelet, I-L-E-T, eyelet. Yeah. <laughs> so just like the eyelet cells in the pancreas, I-S-L-E-T. Gotcha. Gorgeous pun. If, you're, if you are a medical person by training, you yeah. are chuckling or groaning at that pun. <laughs> sure. Um, the device delivers, as many other artificial pancreas stories we've covered before, a custom-made regimen of insulin tailored to each individual's characteristics including weight sex and medical history what the innovation in this device is is an ai that is constantly learning what the optimal amount of insulin is based on their weight and the last meal they ate so rather than having patients manually input the number of carbohydrates they consumed for each meal which is how most of the bionic pancreas devices operate right now the insulin pumps Mm -hmm. The user of this device, the eyelet, only has to specify whether they had breakfast, lunch, or dinner in an app that interfaces with eyelet. Um, 
And over time, it says, oh, well, you know, the, the app learns that these are the kinds of carbohydrates and calories you usually take in for those respective meals. Since patients no longer have to calculate their carbs and calories, this feature is expected to drastically improve adherence. Yeah. Anytime, this is a very, very simple rule for human beings. If you lower the number of steps needed in order to accomplish a particular task, you immediately increase the probability of that task getting done, if that makes sense. So (laughs) for those of you who want some statistics, we typically use a number known as the hemoglobin A1C, which is a little marker or graffiti that uh, the body will put on cells as a measure of how good your blood sugar control has been over the last three months. Mm -hmm. The lifetime of a red blood cell, essentially. You want that number, if you are diabetic or non-diabetic, ideally to be under six. Yep. 5.7 to be exact. So in a study with a clinical trial involving 219 patients with specifically type 1 diabetes wore their bionic pancreas, this specialized insulin pump, for 13 weeks. Okay. These participants had all previously been on insulin shots for at least a year. So these are people who are not insulin naive. They then compared the blood sugar levels to those of 107 type 1 diabetes patients who just had conventional treatment, such as injection and the existing insulin pumps on the market during the same 13 weeks. Okay, sure, sure. So we're we're not comparing to placebo, right? Because we know what happens when diabetics get placebo. So we're comparing to standard of care. Those that use the eyelid saw their blood sugar levels drop from 7.9% to 73 while the control group stayed pretty much unchanged at around 7.7. So all of these were specifically chosen to be people who did not have the best control, but didn't have horribly out of control. So this demonstrated the device is effective, although not as effective as I think those of us in the medical world would like, but it would significantly improve patient adherence. And that's something that we often don't think of, and certainly in a hospital setting. I say do this, and I naturally assume, of course, you'll follow my instructions. Why wouldn't you? (laughs) Yeah, you know, you want to live. I'm kind of showing you how to live your best life. If you follow this advice, you're going to listen. Yeah, that that would make sense. But But people people don't always want to do these things, even when it's for their own benefit, because, listen, that's a lot of work sometimes, and you got other stuff going on. That doesn't mean we're excusing it, but we understand. So if this increases adherence, the likelihood, even for these minor gains, would be great. Now, in the future, ideally, this could be upgraded even further. And of course, the dream is to achieve a completely autonomous system that requires no input. You don't even have to say, you know, I had breakfast, lunch, or dinner. There's no interacting with an app. It just does what it needs to do. So this was in one of the most recent New England journals of medicine. Media likes to make a big deal about this, saying we finally achieved the bionic pancreas. We haven't. We're just getting better and better and better at insulin pumps. But the machine learning involved in this one is really a neat step forward. Yeah. And like I said, with the last piece of technology, when we talked about the plantobots, this may not be the ultimate solution, but we're taking steps right now. We're we're trying different kind of things out. And it may be that this particular technology wins out or something that's like it or something that aims to do the same, but with a different mechanism. But I, I really, really love the progress that we're making on all of this. Just, I mean, especially imagine like a five-year-old kid that you really can't remind them to be taking their insulin and counting their carbs. You know, if they were able to just hook up one of these artificial pancreases and live their life just like any other kid without diabetes. So, are you depressed yet, Santosh? <laughs> I'm not. I'm actually feeling quite hopeful after everything that we well, were talking good. about. Then make sure that you don't have a snack because it's too late and I don't want to <laughs> kill your mood because our next, because <laughs> what, our next story. You, what, okay. 
My next story, <laughs> eating at night might make you depressed. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, um. All right. So... Let me give you a couple examples. <laughs> this is so sad. I mean, nothing's better than a midnight snack. Turns out, not for your mental health. Okay, got so it. let's start over in Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. The first study I'm going to tell you about examines the association of night eating with depression and depressive symptoms in Korean adults using okay. a nationally representative sample of 31,000 adults over 19 years old from okay. surveyed from 2008 to 2013. And they were grouped based on night eaters who were found to consume over 25% of their total intake between 7 p.m. and 6 a.m. and non-night eaters who, you know, ate outside of those hours. Depression was defined based on diagnosis by a doctor, Okay. whereas depressive symptoms were just defined as feelings of sadness or desperation for more than two weeks in the last year. So that's actually a pretty decent set of parameters to, to start with. Sure. Then, yeah, that's that's the, uh, this is a good kind of observational study. Then they did a logistic regression analysis to look at the relationship between the night eating and the odds of depression after it was controlled for age, education, income, marital status, drinking, smoking, physical activity, BMI, menopausal status in women, total energy intake and sleep duration. And after all of those factors were figured in, about 14% of Korean adults surveyed were determined to be night eaters. Okay, okay. And that group was found more likely to be men who were young, less educated, single, drinkers, smokers, and not employed. In women, night eatered night eaters had higher odds of depression. So even though men were more likely to be night eaters, women were more likely to be depressed if they were night eaters. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And again, we're making an association, so not really a a causal link, but this could be actually one way or the other. So meaning that a person is depressed, therefore they have a tendency to eat more at night versus, you know, the habit of eating contributes to depression. And just from my knowledge uh, and, uh, you know, background in in this, and this is from a pediatric standpoint, it, it may actually run both ways, Josh. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of confounds in this study. We're not getting any solid answers here. But I sure. started with this Korean study because uh, Korean society, is, as noted in the study, has a very distinct lifestyle such as frequent overtime work, social gathering, and a late night snacking culture. This is also common oh. in a lot of other Asian societies. You see this in uh, Japan where okay. you go out and kind of do karaoke and late night snacking with the boss as part of the work culture. And okay. these lifestyles cause uh, Koreans in this study to consume food later than what we usually think of as dinner time. Got it. I understand. So yeah, yeah. interestingly, like I said, they really only found the association of depression in Korean women, uh, not so much the men, even though men were more likely to be night eating. Now, sure. meanwhile, in America, Mm-hmm. People undergoing night shift work who, or simulated night shift work in this study who ate both during the day and at night saw an increase in symptoms of depression and anxiety. So this is the new study. Uh, those who ate okay. only during the day were protected from worsening of, moons, of mood symptoms. So investigators from Brigham and Women's Hospital designed a study that simulated night work, which... I would love to know how you simulate night work. Yeah. <laughs> they they may have actually No, no, no. I'll I'll, t- I'll actually tell you, but <laughs> Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Um, that simulated the night work and then tested the effects of daytime and nighttime eating versus daytime only. And gotcha. they found that among the participants in the daytime and nighttime eating group, depression-like mood levels increased by about 26% and anxiety by about 16. Those who had daytime only eating did not have this increase, which suggests that the timing of your meal may influence your mood. 
Okay, very, very fair. So this does go along with most people's circadian rhythms. When we have waking time, you know, when we need energy and this kind of a thing versus when we're kind of closing down or shutting down. So I do kind of understand that if one throws that rhythm off by actually trying to eat when your body is trying to cool down, turn off, all that kind of a thing for nighttime, why moods might get affected by this. So it does make sense. So the results of this were published in Penis, which is, of course, course the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Sciences. Yeah, P-N-A-S. Uh-huh, sure. (laughs) Yep. Uh, So researchers Sheer, Chalapa, and colleagues enrolled 19 participants, 12 men and 7 women, for a randomized controlled study. So how do you simulate night shift work? How do you do it? Participants underwent a forced desynchrony protocol in dim light for four 28-hour days, such that by the fourth day, their behavioral Mm -hmm. cycles had been inverted by 12 hours, simulating night work and causing a circadian misalignment. Wow. Everyone okay. went underwent this, and then they were randomly assigned to one of the two mealtime groups, daytime, nighttime, or daytime only. Okay, um, gotcha. And the team then assessed depression and anxiety-like mood levels every hour. Now, here's where it gets a little, like, yes, it was randomized, which is good, but if you subjected me to like forced light desynchronization for four days, I'm already going to be a little depressed and anxious even before food enters into it. That's that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, the team, however, found that meal timing did significantly affect the mood levels. During the simulated night shift day four, those in the nighttime group had increased levels of depression and anxiety compared to baseline. In contrast, there were actually no changes in mood in the daytime meal intervention group during the night shift. So those who had okay. a greater degree of circadian misalignment experienced more depression, anxiety, like moods. And we know some people are morning people. Some mm-hmm. people are night people. If you are naturally a night person, this may not apply to you at all. Yeah. About 10% of us on average have this kind of night owl thing where the usual expected circadian rhythms are pretty much inverted. And Josh, it is fair to say that there's a spectrum of human beings in the middle where we can, some of us tolerate these kind of shifts much better than others. Yeah. The young, the, <laughs> the youth, the youths, what's a youth, the youths, <laughs> the youths. <laughs> That That is true. The younger you are, the more you're resilient you are to these kind of changes and able to kind of change back and forth. We do require less sleep as we age. And so, you know, that can help us to some extent. But no, no, even, even that being said, Josh, over time, it is true that there are folks who are a little bit more naturally, for one reason or another, more resilient to shifting over to a nighttime active schedule than a daytime and, and remaining that way. Now, that brings us to the end of a lot of the actual science in this episode, mm. but I have okay. one more treat for you, a dessert, Ooh. if you will. Oh, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. A mm. jelly that pulses in time with your heart. Now, Santosh, I want you to go to your computer, and this is very important. You need to spell this exactly the way I tell you, or else you're going to go into a whole other section of the internet that we do not want to send our listeners to. All right, right. I'm going into incognito mode. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Look up Uh Throbber, T-H-R-O-B-R, Okay. Robber Jelly by Bompus and Parr. Okay. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Oh, here we go. I, I, I'm on Amazon. Uh, there's actually bompusandparr.com. Um, mm-hmm. I want you specifically <laughs> to look up under their projects, Throbber. Listeners, yeah. I promise you this is safe for work. Th- this is. Be real okay, careful gosh. how you get there. 
Okay, so and- we got so the heart throbber, so the world's first food that pulsates in time with your heart, Valentine's 2021. Um, and so uh, let's it was see, a Harry Park- heartbeat. It's a heartbeat-activated yes. web application that enables mm-hmm. mixed reality dining with a pumping jelly centerpiece for the finale. So you know all those Fitbits or Apple watches you have that measure your heart rate? Uh-huh, yeah, this, yeah. These, these ingenious jelly makers basically took one of those kinds of apps and <laughs> ran it through electrodes to a dessert. So as you move your spoon closer, the gelatin, the jello mold that you are going to eat is pulsating sure. to your own heartbeat. And that was their 2021 St. Valentine's release. (laughs) And where, you know, there's, let's see, they're calling it like uh, the the Rolls Royce of jelly molds and, you know, all these kind of things here. So where was this, Josh? Where, like, you'd have to go to the restaurant, I'm guessing, in order to order this 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 dessert this dessert sadly is no longer available they, this was oh, kind of a okay, one-time gosh. special thing bompus and par are apparently mm-hmm. the willy wonkas of jelly makers and constantly doing <laughs> a lot of crazy projects that i really encourage you to follow up on but <laughs> this is so cool i don't mind one bit driving uh traffic over here so um yeah excalibur xo the world's first premium poppers um uh, so the team in order to create this heartbeat pulsating jelly the team consulted the team consulted ucl experimental psychologist professor daniel richardson and who who mentioned, you know, the heart oscillates in response to our emotions. It speeds up when we're aroused, when we're exposed to a new and exciting stimulus like Throbber, which I'm sure had nothing to do with the Valentine's holiday. Um, sure. People's, people's heart rates sync up when sharing an experience. So low lighting has an effect on romance, but the lights turn down low, the pupils dilate, the heart beats faster, the crystal-shaped jelly starts vibrating in time with your beating hearts. And really you should go listen to our episode on neurogastronomy to see how your own body can be made to like or dislike food just by altering your biofeedback and physiological responses. So wow! imagine if you could program motion. I like the way my, my jello don't jiggle jiggle. Oh wait, it does with my heart. <laughs> yeah, Jello is supposed to jiggle, jiggle. Uh, Louis Thoreau was saying his his money don't jiggle, jiggle. But yeah, it folds. Yeah. I like <laughs> the way you wiggle, wiggle. Yeah. Faux show. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Makes me want to dribble, dribble. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. Yeah, that's okay. it. We uh, started with we started with okra that can stop a bleeding heart, and ended with gelatin that can mimic your heartbeat. This is so cool. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Thus, oh, ending man. this week's journal club, we have become what we eat. <laughs> okay. So oh, that's so it good. for. This week, as always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. For those of you who are supporting us on the ACAST tier, thank you so much. We now have at least once a month and more often as we remember to do it a little bonus for you conversations that go nowhere where santosh (laughs) and i uh are talking behind the scenes before the recording starts about really could be anything the only way to find out is to sign up yeah yeah it's uh if your curiosity is piqued please come on and that's and that's what we want to do we want to pique your curiosity go out there learn about the world devour it uh, you know, mm-hmm. let your let your brain devour every bit of knowledge that you can find. Um, <laughs> this show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, wash your hands, especially if you're going to be eating things. 
<laughs> wash your hands, get your shots, wear your masks, especially if you're going to be in airplanes or very close quarters with other mm-hmm. people who might be infected during where we are now smack in the middle of food season. And when you've done all that, find a place to travel, find a person to travel with, get out there, and hey, as always, happy travels. Bye, everybody. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.